Hello everyone, and thanks for joining me for this supplemental episode of Historical Insights. I'm your host, Jordan Collier. Today, I'm going to read two narrative accounts of the battles in and around Chattanooga in November 1863, one Union and one Confederate. Rather than go into great details summarizing the events of the battles, the rising action and aftermath, I thought it would be more interesting to hear from two witnesses who were there and experienced it in their own words. The Union witness was a high-ranking general who wrote a memoir after the war to recount his experiences, whom we've heard from already, William Tecumseh Sherman. Sherman gives a very calculated, concise reflection on the part he played in the battle, with rather cold, hard facts, and yet it's clear and vivid. His memoirs were published in 1875, nearly 12 years after these events. So while he was an eyewitness, keep in mind his recollections have the benefit of more than a decade of hindsight. I looked for a similarly high-ranking Confederate memoir, but settled ultimately on Sam Watkins, a private in the 1st Tennessee Infantry. We heard from Watkins once before at the Battle of Shiloh. As Sam Watkins was from Columbia, Tennessee, just over 60 miles northeast of Florence, he was very nearly a local. I found it challenging to abridge his narration, because he's so amusing to read. I can't necessarily vouch that everything he says is 100% factual. However, I also have no reason to doubt that what he presents is his honest recollection of the events he witnessed almost 20 years before publishing his memoir in 1882. His recollection contrasts with Sherman's in its richness of narrative detail and personal flair. If you can make it through Sherman's more dry narration, Sam Watkins is a treat that won't disappoint. We'll begin with General Sherman. Quote, At last, on the 23rd of November, my three divisions lay behind the hills opposite the mouth of the Chickamauga. I dispatched the brigade of the second division, commanded by General Giles A. Smith, under cover of the hills to North Chickamauga Creek to man the boats designed for the pontoon bridge with orders at midnight to drop down silently to a point above the mouth of the South Chickamauga. There land two regiments who were to move along the riverbank quietly and capture the enemy's river pickets. General Giles A. Smith then was to drop rapidly below the mouth of the Chickamauga, disembark the rest of his brigade, and dispatch the boats across for fresh loads. These orders were skillfully executed, and every rebel picket but one was captured. The balance of General Morgan L. Smith's division was then rapidly ferried across. That of General John E. Smith followed, and by daylight of November 24th, two divisions of about 8,000 men were on the east bank of the Tennessee, and had thrown up a very respectable rifle trench as a tete du pont. As soon as the day dawned, some of the boats were taken from the use of ferrying, and a pontoon bridge was begun, under the immediate direction of Captain Dresser, the whole planned and supervised by General William F. Smith in person. A pontoon bridge was also built at the same time over Chickamauga Creek, near its mouth, giving communication with the two regiments which had been left on the north side, and fulfilling a most important purpose at a later stage of the drama. I will here bear my willing testimony to the completeness of this whole business. 
All the officers charged with the work were present, and manifested a skill which I cannot praise too highly. I have never beheld any work done so quietly, so well, and I doubt if the history of war can show a bridge of that extent vis-a-vis thirteen hundred and fifty feet laid so noiselessly and well in so short a time. I attribute it to the genius and intelligence of General William F. Smith. The steamer, Dunbar, arrived up in the course of the morning, and relieved Ewing's division of the labor of rowing across. But by noon the pontoon bridge was done, and my three divisions were across, with men, horses, artillery, and everything. General Jeff C. Davis's division was ready to take the bridge, and I ordered the columns to form in order to carry the missionary hills. The movement had been carefully explained to all division commanders, and at 1 p.m. we marched from the river in three columns in echelon. The left, General Morgan L. Smith, the column of direction, following substantially Chickamauga Creek. The center, General John E. Smith, in columns, doubled on the center at one brigade interval to the right and rear. The right, General Ewing, in column at the same distance to the right rear, prepared to deploy to the right, on the supposition that we would meet the enemy in that direction. Each head of column was covered by a good line of skirmishers with supports. A light, drizzling rain prevailed, and the clouds hung low, cloaking our movement from the enemy's tower of observation on Lookout Mountain. We soon gained the foothills. Our skirmishers crept up the face of the hills, followed by their supports, and at 3.30 p.m. we had gained, with no loss, the desired point. A brigade of each division was pushed rapidly to the top of the hill, and the enemy, for the first time, seemed to realize the movement, but too late, for we were in possession. He opened with artillery, but General Ewing soon got some of Captain Richardson's guns up that steep hill and gave back artillery, and the enemy's skirmishers made one or two ineffectual dashes at General Lightburn, who had swept round and got a farther hill, which was the real continuation of the ridge. From studying all the maps, I had inferred that Missionary Ridge was a continuous hill, but we found ourselves on two high points, with a deep depression between us and the one immediately over the tunnel, which was my chief objective point. The ground we had gained, however, was so important that I could leave nothing to chance, and ordered it to be fortified during the night. One brigade of each division was left on the hill. One of General Morgan L. Smith's closed the gap to Chickamauga Creek. Two of General John E. Smith's were drawn back to the base in reserve, and General Ewing's right was extended down into the plain, thus crossing the ridge in a general line facing southeast. The enemy felt our left flank about 4 p.m., and a pretty smart engagement with artillery and muskets ensued when he drew off. But it cost us dear, for General Giles A. Smith was severely wounded, and had to go to the rear, and the command of the brigade devolved on Colonel Topper, 116th Illinois, who managed it with skill during the rest of the operations. At the moment of my crossing the bridge, General Howard appeared, having come with three regiments from Chattanooga along the east bank of the Tennessee, connecting my new position with that of the main army in Chattanooga. He left the three regiments attached temporarily to General Ewing's right, and returned to his own corps at Chattanooga. 
As night closed in, I ordered Jeff C. Davis to keep one of his brigades at the bridge, one close up to my position and one intermediate. Thus we passed the night, heavy details being kept busy at work on the entrenchments on the hill. During the night the sky cleared away bright, a cold frost filled the air, and our campfires revealed to the enemy and to our friends in Chattanooga our position on Missionary Ridge. About midnight I received at the hands of Major Rowley, of General Grant's staff, orders to attack the enemy at dawn of day, with notice that General Thomas would attack in force early in the day. Accordingly, before day, I was in the saddle, attended by all my staff, rode to the extreme left of our position near Chickamauga Creek, thence up the hill held by General Lightburn, and round to the extreme right of General Ewing. Catching as accurate an idea of the ground as possible by the dim light of morning, I saw that our line of attack was in the direction of Missionary Ridge, with wings supporting on either flank. Quite a valley lay between us and the next hill of the series, and this hill presented steep sides, the one to the west partially cleared, but the other covered with a native forest. The crest of the ridge was narrow and wooded. The farther point of this hill was held by the enemy, with a breastwork of logs and fresh earth, filled with men and two guns. The enemy was also seen in great force on a still higher hill beyond the tunnel, from which he had a fine plunging fire on the hill in dispute. The gorge between, through which several roads and the railroad tunnel pass, could not be seen from our position, but formed the natural place d'armes, where the enemy covered his masses to resist our contemplated movement of turning his right flank and endangering his communications with his depot at Chickamauga Station. As soon as possible, the following dispositions were made. The brigades of Colonels Conquerel and Alexander and General Lightburn were to hold our hill as the key point. General Corse, with as much of his brigade as could operate along the narrow ridge, was to attack from our right center. General Lightburn was to dispatch a good regiment from his position to cooperate with General Corse. And General Morgan L. Smith was to move along the east base of Missionary Ridge, connecting with General Corse, and Colonel Loomis, in like manner, to move along the west bank, supported by the two reserve brigades of General Johnny Smith. The sun had hardly risen before General Corse had completed his preparations, and his bugle sounded the forward. The 40th Illinois, supported by the 46th Ohio on our right center, with the 30th Ohio, Colonel Jones, moved down the face of our hill, and up that, held by the enemy. The line advanced to within about 80 yards of the entrenched position, where General Corse found a secondary crest, which he gained and held. To this point, he called his reserves, and asked for reinforcements, which were sent but the space was narrow, and it was not well to crowd the men, as the enemy's artillery and musketry fire swept the approach to his position, giving him great advantage. As soon as General Corse had made his preparations, he assaulted, and a close, severe contest ensued, which lasted more than an hour, gaining and losing ground, but never the position first obtained, from which the enemy in vain attempted to drive him. 
General Morgan L. Smith kept gaining ground on the left spurs of Missionary Ridge, and Colonel Loomis got abreast of the tunnel and railroad embankment on his side, drawing the enemy's fire, and to that extent relieving the assaulting party on the hill crest. Captain Callender had four of his guns on General Ewing's Hill, and Captain Woods his Napoleon battery on General Lightburn's. Also, two guns of Dillon's battery were with Colonel Alexander's brigade. All directed their fire as carefully as possible to clear the hill to our front, without endangering our own men. The fight raged furiously about 10 a.m., when General Corse received a severe wound, was brought off the field, and the command of the brigade and of the assault at the key point devolved on that fine young gallant officer, Colonel Walcott of the 46th Ohio, who fulfilled his part manfully. He continued the contest, pressing forward at all points. Colonel Loomis had made good progress to the right, and about 2 p.m., General John E. Smith, judging the battle to be most severe on the hill and being required to support General Ewing, ordered up Colonel Realms and General Mathis's brigades across the field to the summit that was being fought for. They moved up under a heavy fire of cannon and musketry and joined Colonel Walcott. But the crest was so narrow that they necessarily occupied the west face of the hill. The enemy, at the time being massed in great strength at the tunnel gorge, moved a large force under cover of the ground and the thick bushes, and suddenly appeared on the right rear of this command. The suddenness of the attack disconcerted the men, exposed as they were in the open field. They fell back in some disorder to the lower edge of the field and reformed. These two brigades were in the nature of supports and did not constitute a part of the real attack. The movement, seen from Chattanooga, five miles off with spyglasses, gave rise to the report, which even General Miggs has repeated, that we were repulsed on the left. It was not so. The real attacking columns of General Corse, Colonel Loomis, and General Smith were not repulsed. They engaged in a close struggle all day, persistently, stubbornly, and well. When the two reserve brigades of General John E. Smith fell back as described, the enemy made a show of pursuit, but were in their turn caught in flank by the well-directed fire of our brigade on the wooded crest, and hastily sought cover behind the hill. Thus matters stood about 3 p.m. The day was bright and clear, and the amphitheater of Chattanooga sat in beauty at our feet. I had watched for the attack of General Thomas early in the day. Column after column of the enemy was streaming toward me. Gun after gun poured its concentric shot on us from every hill and spur that gave a view of any part of the ground held by us. An occasional shot from Fort Wood and Orchard Knob and some musketry fire and artillery over about Lookout Mountain was all that I could detect on our side. But about 3 p.m., I noticed the white line of musketry fire in front of Orchard Knoll, extending farther and farther right and left and on. We could only hear a faint echo of sound, but enough was seen to satisfy me that General Thomas was at last moving on the center. I knew that our attack had drawn vast masses of the enemy to our flank and felt sure of the result. Some guns which had been firing on us all day were silent or were turned in a different direction. The advancing line of musketry fire from Orchard Knoll disappeared to us behind a spar of the hill and could no longer be seen.
and it was not until night closed in that I knew that the troops in Chattanooga had swept across Missionary Ridge and broken the enemy's center. Of course, the victory was won, and pursuit was the next step. I ordered General Morgan L. Smith to feel to the tunnel, and it was found vacant, save by the dead and wounded of our own and the enemy commingled. The reserve of General Jeff C. Davis was ordered to march at once by the pontoon bridge across Chickamauga Creek at its mouth and push forward to the depot. General Howard had reported to me in the early part of the day with the remainder of his Army Corps, the 11th, and had been posted to connect my left with Chickamauga Creek. He was ordered to repair an old broken bridge about two miles up the Chickamauga and to follow General Davis at 4 a.m., and the 15th Army Corps was ordered to follow at daylight. But General Howard found that to repair the bridge was more of a task than was first supposed, and we were all compelled to cross the Chickamauga on the new pontoon bridge at its mouth. By 11 a.m., General Jeff C. Davis's division had reached the depot, just in time to see it in flames. He found the enemy occupying two hills, partially entrenched, just beyond the depot. These he soon drove away. The depot presented a scene of desolation that war alone exhibits. Cornmeal and corn in huge burning piles, broken wagons, abandoned caissons, two 32-pounder rifled guns with carriages burned, pieces of pontoons, bulks, and chesses, etc., destined doubtless for the famous invasion of Kentucky, and all manner of things burning and broken. Still, the enemy kindly left us a good supply of forage for our horses, and meal, beans, etc., for our men. Pausing but a short while, we passed on, the road filled with broken wagons and abandoned caissons, till night. Just as the head of the column emerged from a dark, miry swamp, we encountered the rear guard of the retreating enemy. The fight was sharp, but the night closed in so dark that we could not move. General Grant came up to us there. At daylight, we resumed the march, and at Graysville, where a good bridge spanned the Chickamauga, we found the corps of General Palmer on the south bank, who informed us that General Hooker was on a road still farther south, and we could hear his guns near Ringgold. As the roads were filled with all the troops they could possibly accommodate, I turned to the east to fulfill another part of the general plan, vis-a-vis -vis to break up all communication between Bragg and Longstreet. We had all sorts of rumors as to the latter, but it was manifest that we should interpose a proper force between these two armies. I therefore directed General Howard to move to Parker's Gap, and thence send rapidly a competent force to Red Clay, or the council ground, there to destroy a large section of the railroad which connects Dalton and Cleveland. This work was most successfully and fully accomplished that day. The division of General Jeff C. Davis was moved close up to Ringgold to assist General Hooker if needed, and the 15th Corps was held at Graysville for anything that might turn up. About noon, I had a message from General Hooker saying he had had a pretty hard fight at the mountain pass just beyond Ringgold, and he wanted me to come forward to turn the position. He was not aware at that time that Howard, by moving through Parker's Gap toward Red Clay, had already turned it 
so I rode forward to Ringgold in person, and found the enemy had already fallen back to Tunnel Hill. He was already out of the valley of the Chickamauga, and on ground which the waters flow to the Coosa, he was out of Tennessee. End quote. We are going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll hear from the gifted storyteller Sam Watkins as he describes these same events from the perspective of a rebel private. Please stay with us. We will now hear from Sam Watkins. Keep in mind the structure of events as we heard from General Sherman, and notice the ways in which the narrative recollections coincide or diverge. To better capture the character of his narration, I will read in my best southern accent, which, I admit, will be difficult for me to sustain for such a lengthy excerpt. While I am a native southerner, I worked for many years to neutralize my accent, an effort so thoroughly rendered that now the accent I use is not really natural. If you notice any cracks in my accent, I apologize right now. Quote, the Yankee outpost was on one side of the Tennessee River and ours was on the other. I was on the detail one Sunday commanded by Sergeant John T. Tucker. When we were approaching, we heard the old guard and the Yankee picket talking back and forth across the river. The new guard immediately resumed the conversation. We had to halloo at the top of our voices, the river being about 300 yards wide at this point. But there was a little island about the middle of the river. A Yankee hallooed out, Oh, Johnny, Johnny, meet me halfway in the river on the island. All right, said Sergeant Tucker, who immediately undressed all but his hat, in which he carried the Chattanooga Rebel and some other southern newspapers, and swam across to the island. When he got there, the Yankee was there, but the Yankee had waited. I do not know what he and John talked about, but they got very friendly, and John invited him to come clear across to our side, which invitation he accepted. I noticed at the time that while John swam, the Yankee waited, remarking that he couldn't swim. The river was but little over waist-deep. Well, they came across, and we swapped a few lies, canteens, and tobacco, and then the Yankee went back, wading all the way across the stream. That man was General Wilder, commanding the Federal Cavalry, and at the Battle of Missionary Ridge, he threw his whole division of cavalry across the Tennessee River at that point, thus flanking Bragg's army and opening the battle. He was examining the ford, and the swapping business was but a mere by-play. He played it sharp, and Bragg had to get further. Maney's brigade fortified on top of Lookout Mountain. From this position, we could see five states. The Yankees had built a fort across the river on Moccasin Point, and were throwing shells at us continually. I have never seen such accurate shooting in my life. It was upon the principle of shooting a squirrel out of a tree, and they had become so perfect in their aim that I believe they could have killed a squirrel a mile off. 
We could have killed a great many artillery men if we had been allowed to shoot, but no private soldier was ever allowed to shoot a gun on his own hook. If he shot at all, it must be by the order of an officer, for if just one cartridge was shot away or lost, the private was charged twenty-five cents for it, and had to do extra duty, and I don't think our artillery was ever allowed to fire a single shot under any circumstances. Our rations were cooked up by a special detail ten miles in the rear, and were sent to us every three days, and then those three days' rations were generally eaten up at one meal, and the private soldier had to starve the other two days and a half. Never in all my whole life do I remember of ever experiencing so much oppression and humiliation. The soldiers were starved and almost naked, and covered all over with lice and camp itch and filth and dirt. The men looked sick, hollow-eyed, and heartbroken, living principally upon parched corn, which had been picked out of the mud and dirt under the feet of the officers' horses. We thought of nothing but starvation. The Battle of Missionary Ridge was opened from Moccasin Point, while we were on Lookout Mountain, but I knew nothing of the movements or maneuvers of either army, and only tell what part I took in the battle. One morning, Theodore Sloan, Hogg Johnson, and I were standing picket at the little stream that runs along the foot of Lookout Mountain. In fact, I would be pleased to name our captain, Fulcher, and Lieutenant Lansdowne of the guard on this occasion, because we acted as picket for the whole three days' engagement without being relieved, and haven't been relieved yet. But that battle has gone into history. We heard a Yankee call, Oh, Johnny! Johnny Reb! I started out to meet him as formerly, when he hallooed out, Go back, Johnny, go back! We are ordered to fire on you! What is the matter? Is your army going to advance on us? I don't know. We are ordered to fire. I jumped back into the picket post, and a mini-ball ruined the only hat I had. Another and another followed in quick succession, and the dirt flew up in our faces off our little breastworks. Before night, the picket line was engaged from one end to the other. If you had only heard it, dear reader, it went like ten thousand woodchoppers, and an occasional boom of a cannon would remind you of a tree falling. We could hear colonels giving commands to their regiments, and could see very plainly the commotion and hubbub, but what was up we were unable to tell. The picket line kept moving to our right. The second knot found us near the tunnel, and right where two railroads cross each other, or rather one runs over the other high enough for the cars to pass under. We could see all over Chattanooga, and it looked like myriads of blue coats swarming. Days and Manigat's brigades got into a night attack at the foot of Lookout Mountain. I could see the whole of it. It looked like lightning bugs on a dark night. But about midnight, everything quieted down. Theodore Sloan, Hog Johnson, and myself occupied an old log cabin as vidette. We had not slept any for two nights and were very drowsy, I assure you. But we knew there was something up, and we had to keep awake. The next morning, nearly day, I think I had dropped off into a pleasant doze and was dreaming of more pretty things than you ever saw in your life when Johnson touched me and whispered, Look, look, there are three Yankees. Must I shoot? I whispered back, Yes. A bang, a wah, went a shriek. He got one, sure. Everything got quiet again, and we heard nothing more for an hour. Johnson touched me again and whispered, Yonder they come again. Look, look. I could not see them. Was too sleepy for that. 
Sloane could not see them either. Johnson pulled down and another unearthly squall rended the night air. The streaks of day had begun to glimmer over Missionary Ridge, and I could see in the dim twilight the Yankee guard not fifty yards off. Said I, boys, let's fire into them and run. We took deliberate aim and fired. At that they raised, I thought, a mighty sickly sort of yell, and charged the house. We ran out, but waited on the outside. We took a second position where the railroads cross each other, but they began shelling us from the river when we got on the opposite side of the railroad and they ceased. I know nothing about the battle, how Grant with one wing went up the river and Hooker's Corps went down Wills Valley, etc. I heard fighting and commanding and musketry all day long, but I was still on picket. Balls were passing over our heads, both coming and going. I could not tell whether I was standing picket for Yankees or Rebels. I knew that the Yankee line was between me and the Rebel line, for I could see the battle right over the tunnel. We had been placed on picket at the foot of Lookout Mountain, but we were five miles from that place now. If I had tried to run in, I couldn't. I had got separated from Sloan and Johnston somehow. In fact, I was waiting either for an uh, advance of the Yankees or to be called in by the captain of the picket. I could see the blue coats fairly line in Missionary Ridge in my head. The Yankees were swarming everywhere. They were passing me all day with their dead and wounded going back to Chattanooga. No one seemed to notice me. They were passing to and fro, cannon, artillery, and everything. I was willing to be taken prisoner, but no one seemed disposed to do it. I was afraid to look at them, and I was afraid to hide, for fear someone's attention would be attracted toward me. I wished I could make myself invisible. I think I was invisible. I felt that way anyhow. I felt like the boy who wanted to go to the wedding but had no shoes. Casa Bianca never had such feelings I had that live-long day. Say, Captain, say, if yet my task be done, and yet the sweeping raves rolled on, and answered neither yea nor nay. About two or three o'clock, a column of Yankees advancing to the attack swept right over where I was standing. I was trying to stand aside and get out of their way, but the more I tried to get out of their way, the more in their way I got. I was carried forward I knew not whither. We soon arrived at the foot of the ridge at our old breastworks. I recognized Robert Brank's old cornstalk house and Alf Horsey's fort, an old log house called Fort Horsley. I was in front of the enemy's line and was afraid to run up the ridge and afraid to surrender. They were ordered to charge up the hill. There was no firing from the rebel lines in our immediate front. They kept climbing and pulling and scratching until I was in touching distance of the old rebel breastworks, right on the very apex of Missionary Ridge. I made one jump, and I heard Captain Turner, who had the very four Napoleon guns we had captured at Perryville, hollow out, Number four solid! And then a roar. The next order was limber to the rear. The Yankees were cutting and slashing, and the cannoneers were running in every direction. I saw Day's brigade throw down their guns and break like quarter horses. Bragg was trying to rally them. I heard him say, Here is your commander, and the soldiers hallowed back. Here is your mule. The whole army was routed. I ran on down the ridge, and there was our regiment, the 1st Tennessee, with their guns stacked and drawing rations as if nothing was going on. 
Says I, Colonel Field, what's the matter? The whole army is routed and running. Hadn't you better be getting away from here? The Yankees are not a hundred yards from here. Turner's battery has surrendered. Day's brigade has thrown down their arms. And look yonder, that is the stars and stripes. He remarked very coolly. You seem to be demoralized. We've whipped them here. We've captured 2,000 prisoners and five strands of colors. Just at this time, General Bragg and staff rode up. Bragg had joined the church at Shelbyville, but he had backslid at Missionary Ridge. He was cursing like a sailor. Says he, What's this? Aha, have you stacked your arms for a surrender? No, sir, says Field. Take arms, shoulder arms, by the right flank, file right march, just as cool and deliberate as if on dress parade. Bragg looked scared. He had put spurs to his horse and was running like a scared dog before Colonel Field had a chance to answer him. Every word of this is a fact. We at once became the rear guard of the whole army. Author's Note I remember General Manning meeting Gary. I do not know who Gary was, but Manny and Gary seemed to be very glad to see each other. Every time I think of that retreat, I think of Gary. I felt sorry for General Bragg. The army was routed, and Bragg looked so scared. Poor fella. He looked so hacked and whipped and mortified and chagrined at defeat. And all along the line, when Bragg would pass, the soldiers would raise the yell, Here is your mule. Bully for Bragg. He's high on retreat. Bragg was a good disciplinarian, and if he had cultivated the love and respect of his troops by feeding and clothing them better than they were, the result would have been different. More depends on a good general than the lives of many privates. The private loses his life, the general his country. As soon as the order was given to march, we saw poor Tom Webb lying on the battlefield shot through the head, his blood and brains smearing his face and clothes, and he's still alive. He was as brave and noble a man as our Heavenly Father in his infinite wisdom ever made. Everybody loved him. He was a universal favorite of the company and regiment, was brave and generous, and ever anxious to take some other man's place when there was any skirmishing or fighting to be done. We did not wish to leave the poor fellow in that condition, and A.S. Horsley, John T. Tucker, Tennessee Thompson, and myself got a litter and carried him on our shoulders through that live-long night back to Chickamauga Station. The next morning, Dr. J.E. Dixon of Deschler's Brigade passed by and told us that it would be useless for us to carry him any further, and that it was utterly impossible for him to ever recover. The Yankees were then advancing and firing upon us. What could we do? We could not carry him any further, and we could not bury him, for he was still alive. To leave him where he was, we thought best. We took hold of his hand, bent over him, and pressed our lips to his, all four of us. We kissed him goodbye, and left him to the tender mercies of the advancing foe, in whose hands he would be in a few moments. No doubt they laughed and jeered at the dying rebel. It mattered not what they did, for poor Tom Webb's spirit, before the sun went down, was with God and the holy angels. He had given all to his country. Oh, how we missed him. It seemed that the very spirit and life of Company H had died with the death of good, noble, and brave Tom Webb. I thank God that I am no infidel, and I feel and believe that I will again see Tom Webb, 
just as sure and certain, reader, as you are now reading these lines, I will meet him up yonder. I know I will. When we had marched about a mile back to the rear of the battlefield, we were ordered to halt so that all stragglers might pass us, as we were detailed as the rear guard. While resting on the road, we saw Day's brigade pass us. They were gunless, cartridge boxless, knapsackless, canteenless, and all other military accoutrementsless, and swordless, and officerless, and they all seemed to have the possum grins, like Bragg looked, and as they passed our regiment, you never heard such fun made of a parcel of soldiers in your life. Every fellow was yelling at the top of his voice, Yeller hammer, Alabama, flicker, 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 Yeller hammer, Alabama, flicker, flicker, flicker. I felt sorry for the Yeller hammer Alabamians. They looked so hacked and answered back never a word. When they had passed, two pieces of artillery passed us. They immediately proceeded us to bring up the rear. The whole guard was placed under the command of the noble, generous, handsome, and brave general guest of South Carolina. I loved General Gist, and when I mentioned his name, tears gathered in my eyes. I think he was the handsomest man I ever knew. Our army was a long time crossing the railroad bridge across Chickamauga River. Maney's brigade of Cheatham's division and General L.E. Polk's brigade of Claiborne's division formed a sort of line of battle and had to wait until the stragglers had all passed. I remember looking at them, and as they passed, I could read the character of every soldier. Some were mad, others cowed, and many were laughing. Some were cursing brag, some the Yankees, and some were rejoicing at the defeat. I cannot describe it. It was the first defeat our army had ever suffered, but the prevailing sentiment was anathemas and denunciations hurled against Jeff Davis for ordering Longstreet's corps to Knoxville and sending off Generals Wheeler and Forrest Cavalry, while every private soldier in the whole army knew that the enemy was concentrating at Chattanooga. When we arrived at Chickamauga Station, our brigade and General Lucius E. Polk's brigade of Claiborne's division were left to set fire to the town and burn up and destroy all those immense piles of army stores and provisions which had been accumulated there to starve the Yankees out of Chattanooga. Great piles of corn and sacks and bacon and crackers and molasses and sugar and coffee and rice and potatoes and onions and peas and flour by the hundreds of barrels, all now to be given to the flames, while for months the rebel soldiers had been stinted and starved for the want of these same provisions. It was enough to make the bravest and most patriotic soul that ever fired a gun in defense of any cause on earth think of rebelling against the authorities as they then were. Every private soldier knew these stores were there, and for the want of them we lost our cause. Reader, I ask you, who do you think was to blame? Most of our army had already passed through hungry and disheartened, and here were all these stores that had to be destroyed. Before setting fire to the town, every soldier in Maney's and Polk's brigades loaded himself down with rations. It was laughable looking rear guard of a routed and retreating army. 
Every one of us had cut open the end of a corn sack, emptied out the corn, and filled it with hard tack, and besides, every one of us had a side of bacon hung up to our bayonets on our guns. Our canteens and clothes and faces and hair were all gummed up with molasses, such as the picture of our rear guard. Now, reader, if you ever were on the rear guard of a routed and retreating army, you know how tedious it is. You don't move more than ten feet at furthest before you have to halt, and then ten feet again a few minutes afterwards, and so on all day long. You haven't time to sit down a moment before you are ordered to move on again, and the Yankees dash up every now and again and fire a volley into your rear. Now that is the way we were marched that live-long day until nearly dark. And then the Yankees began to crowd us. We can see their line forming, and we know we have to fight. About dark, a small body of cavalry dashed in ahead of us and captured and carried off one piece of artillery and Colonel John F. House, General Maney's assistant adjutant general. We will have to form a line of battle and drive them back. Well, we quickly form a line of battle, and the Yankees are seen to emerge from the woods about 200 yards from us. We promptly shell off those sides of bacon and sacks of hardtack that we had worried and tugged with all day long. Bang, bang, sis, sis. We are ordered to load and fire promptly and to hold our position. Yonder they come, the whole division. Our regiment is the only regiment in the action. They are crowding us. Our poor little handful of men are being killed and wounded by scores. There is General George Maney, badly wounded and being carried to the rear. And there is Moon, a fortress battalion, killed dead in his tracks. We can't much longer hold our position. A mini-ball passes through my Bible in my side pocket. All at once, we are ordered to open ranks. Here comes one piece of artillery from a Mississippi battery, bouncing ten feet high over brush and logs and bending down little trees and saplings under whip and spur. The horses are champing the bits, and they are muddied from head to foot. Now, quick, quick, look. The Yankees have discovered the battery and are preparing to charge it. Unlimber horses and case onto the rear. Number one shrapnel, load, fire, boom, boom, load. Abliat, boom, boom. I saw Sam C. fall badly wounded and carried to the rear. I stopped firing to look at Sergeant Doyle, how he had handled his gun. At every discharge it would bounce and turn its muzzle completely to the rear when those old artillery soldiers would return to its place. And it seemed they fired a shot almost every ten seconds. Fire, men! Our muskets roll and rattle, making music like the kettle and bass drum combined. They are checked. We see them fall back into the woods, and Knight throws her mantle over the scene. We fell back now, and had to strip and wade Chickamauga River. It was up to our armpits, and was as cold as charity. We had to carry our clothes across on the points of our bayonets. Fires had been kindled every few yards on the other side, and we soon got warmed up again. I had got as far as Ringgold Gap, when I had unconsciously fallen asleep by the fire, it being the fourth night that I had not slept a wink. Before I got to this fire, however, a gentleman whom I never saw in my life, because it was totally dark at the time, handed me a letter from the old folks at home, and a good suit of clothes. He belonged to Colonel Brickenridge's cavalry, and if he ever sees these lines I wish to say to him, God bless you, old boy. I had lost every blanket and vestige of clothing, except those I had on at Missionary Ridge. I lay down by the fire and I went to sleep, 
but how long I had slept I knew not, when I felt a rough hand grab me and give me a shake, and the fellow said, Are you going to sleep here and let the Yankees cut your throat? I opened my eyes and asked, Who are you? He politely and pleasantly, yet profanely, told me that he was General Walker. The poor fellow was killed on the 22nd of July at Atlanta, and that I had better get further. He passed on and waked others. Just then, General Claiborne and staff rode by me, and I heard one of his staff remark, General, here is a ditch or gully that will make a natural breastwork. All I heard General Claiborne say was, Uh, eh, eh. I saw General Lucius E. Polk's brigade form on the crest of the hill. I went a little further and laid down again and went to sleep. How long I had lain there and what was passing over me I know nothing about, but when I awoke, here is what I saw. I saw a long line of blue coats marching down the railroad track. The first thought I had was, well, I'm gone up now, sure. But on second sight, I discovered that they were prisoners. Claiborne had had the doggondest fight of the war. The ground was piled with dead Yankees. They were piled in heaps. The scene looked unlike any battlefield I ever saw. From the foot to the top of the hill was covered with their slain, all lying on their faces. It had the appearance of the roof of a house shingled with dead Yankees. They were flushed with victory and success, and had determined to push forward and capture the whole of the rebel army, and set up their triumphant standard at Atlanta, then exit the southern confederacy. But their dead were so piled in their path at Ringgold Gap that they could not pass them. The Spartans gained a name at Thermopylae, in which Leonidas and the whole Spartan army were slain while defending the pass. Claiborne's division gained a name at Ringgold Gap, in which they not only slew the victorious army, but captured 5,000 prisoners besides. That brilliant victory of Claiborne's made him not only the best general of the Army of the Tennessee, and covered his men with glory and honor of heroes, but checked the advance of Grant's whole army. We did not budge an inch further for many a long day, but we went into winter quarters right here at Ringgold Gap, Tunnel Hill, and Dalton. End quote. When viewed alongside each other, these two accounts of the Battle of Chattanooga show the Federal Army under Grant's command, reinforced by Sherman's Corps, overwhelming the Confederates at great slaughter in the rugged terrain to the south of Chattanooga and driving them back into northern Georgia where the rebels will stay lodged until the spring of the new year, 1864. Join us next time as we examine the events of the new year, 1864, with fractured partisan fighting along the banks of the Tennessee in North Alabama, a prelude to what is arguably the most dramatic, destructive, and pivotal year of the war. Thank you so much for joining me.